The topic for tonight is a, one of the great Jewish cultural heroes of all time, the Chazen Yosela Rosenblatt. By a show of hands, who has absolutely no interest in Chazanut? Okay, all right, just to get, just to get a, a, a feel for it, okay. Um, Yosela Rosenblatt was born in the Ukraine in 1882. His father, Rafael Rosenblatt, was a local Baltfila, and he came from a family that had a musical history. Uh, some of the more no- better known Baltfila, Chazanim, if you want to call them Chazanim, uh, from the Tsarist realm were from his family. And as a young boy, he showed a lot of talent. And he would sing at the Shabbos table and in the shul. And then he had a younger brother, Levi, who also had a little bit of talent. Not as much as Yasla, but some talent. And so the family was always strapped for cash. There were 11 children total. I think Yasla was... Actually, there may have been 10 children. Yasla was child number 9. First eight were girls. And then Yosla, then Levi. And so Reb Refoil always was in need of money. And as a religious functionary, that's not so easy to come by. And so when Yosla was seven years old in 1889, they began going on tour. This began in significant part because they were forced to move. Refoil Rosenblatt was actually a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And in 1889, he was expelled from Russia by the Tsarist regime. This happened to actually a significant number of Jews. Uh, Alexander III and later Nicholas II were interested in getting rid of their Jewish population, and many Jews moved, including to America. But if they could uh, eliminate people forcibly on the grounds that they didn't have a uh, right of residence because they were a citizen of another country, then they could be expelled. And so the Rosenblatt family be- were sent packing across the border, and they settled in Sedegora, uh, in Bukovina, near Chernovitz, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Habsburg Empire. And in Sedegora... The Rosenblatt family became uh, uh, closely associated with the local Hasidic Rebbe, and they lived in the world of Hasidus, which was good because Hasidim liked to daven, and Hasidim appreciated nice davening. So if you have musical talent uh, at the Omud, you can make a name for yourself. So father and two young sons go around the Austro-Hungarian Empire, first in Galicia, then later in Hungary proper, and even later in, uh, in Austria, making money, davening for the Yomud on Shabbos. And the money was enough to live on, and then some. The family was able to become somewhat comfortable. The only problem is that below the age of Bar Mitzvah, what can a young boy do in the davening? Kastrati. Sukkot Zimra, what else? Adon Olam, Adam Zmira, Sankalukainu, the beginning and the end, but not the juicy middle. So, okay, so that's exactly the point. Officially, the father would be davening for the Yomud, but the exciting cantorial pieces would be done primarily, once he hit the age of about eight or nine, by Yasala. And the others would really just be accompanying him. So when he turned bar mitzvah, finally 13, in 1895, his bar mitzvah passed without any significant notice. There was no big celebration. But it just meant that he was now able to be the official chazan as opposed to being the de facto chazan. And for a few years, for about five years, father and two sons were wandering around Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, earning a livelihood, davening for the Yomud, and achieving great renown for themselves. A couple of stories. Yasala was a, had a, uh, not only a great voice, but he was very funny. He had great wit. And there are many stories that are told about you know, one-liners that he had. He was 10 years old, and he was in a certain town in Hungary, and someone said to him, 
at the lunch table, who was the, 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 the balabas, uh, who was paying for the lunch and w- wanted to have the chazan and his boys daven and, and, uh, eat lunch in his house, said to Yosla, Nu, sing me an avarachamim and make it a good one. To which Yosla responded, I, ni- I didn't know there was such a thing as a bad avarachamim. <laughs> then he went to a town called Brigel when he was 12 years old. A small town, and he davened for the Umud with his father. With his father. And in the crowd, tremendous crowd, thousand people came to hear him daven that Shabbos. And they loved every minute of it. But in the crowd was a young girl named Tauba Kaufman. And she liked him. And so the girls in the neighborhood were making fun of her that she was going to marry the little Chazendel. Yeah, she? she was 12. <laughs> and he was 12. So, the little Chazendel was a little tiny guy. Even in adulthood, he never grew past five feet tall. He was a little man, very little man. And so she was being pestered by her friends, oh, you're like the little Chazendel. And she, was, she said, no, 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 I'm not going to marry a little Chazendel. Of course, later they got married. Six years later. Although he didn't see her for six years, his mind was always on her. And they got married. Which leads to another story. Uh, when he was 17, he needed to think about getting married because he was tired of being an itinerant chazan. He wanted a pulpit of his own, a steller. But you can only have one if you're married. No congregation in Eastern Europe would hire a, a bachelor of a chazan. You can dive in for the Ahmed once, twice, three times, but you can't be the regular chazan unless you're married. So all sorts of offers were coming in, left and right. The matchmakers gave many possibilities. One, one such example was um, among the brides-to-be whose virtues were sung by the marriage brokers was the daughter of the rabbi of Newmark, known as Freckles among her girlfriends. A large dowry was promised my, uh, my father, meaning uh, Yesla Rosenblatt, because the book is written by his son, if he would marry her. The prospective bridegroom pr- proposed a mask as a return wedding gift. Oh. Oh, yeah, so that marriage didn't happen. Uh, but in the end, he, he liked uh, Tauba Kaufman, and they got married. So, love conquered all. He was ready to take on his first pulpit. Where? In Munkach. Oh, wow. So, Munkach wasn't a good fit for him. Because Munkach, and we're talking about the era of the Minchas Elazar, Chaim Elazar Shapira, and that dynasty, were very, very uh, fundamentalist Hasidim. And in a fundamentalist environment, you're not likely to uh, allow the Baltfilo to experiment in unconventional, untraditional, unorthodox m- musical ways. What was he? Was he a lit rock? He 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 was da- he davened the tra- traditional Nusach Ashkenaz, at least when he was in a, was was in Western Europe and in America. Uh, what he davened on his own time, privately, I don't know. But in every shul where he davened for the Yomud, except for Anshay Sfard, later in, Bro- in Borough Park at the end, he was always davening the conventional Nusach Ashkenaz. So he goes to Munkach, and it's very stifling there. He cannot make a career for himself in this town. The pay isn't all that good, and there's no freedom of uh, artistic movement. So he has to keep going, find himself a new place which isn't all that hard, because he's the best out there. And although there were 40 Chazanim who tried out for the job in Pressburg, uh, he got the job, easily. So he goes in 1901, after less than a year in Munkach, at the age of 19, to Pressburg. Pressburg is a tremendous, uh, important Jewish city. All right, you have it's the city of the Chassam Sofer, the Chassam Sofer's grandson, Rabbi Schreiber, is running the yeshiva. And the yeshiva was the best thing that happened to Yasala in, in Pressburg because it supplied him with a choir. All the yeshiva boys on the side wanted to make a little money. They sang in Yasala's choir. And they were roughly the same age as he was. He was a young man, only 19. And so uh, this was a nice fit for him. His wife, however, couldn't stand it because it was, uh, materially speaking, a backward town and the money, the money wasn't all that good. And Yasala had a large family who were counting on him to support them. This would become an ongoing problem for the rest of his life. 
the life of Yasser Rosenblatt. Eventually, he had eight kids, but he had first a lot of siblings, and Who so, had kids? huh? Who had kids? Yeah, siblings. Had the, si- kids. the siblings. So, oh, so the the the, 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 the siblings had kids, and that would bankrupt him later in life because all the siblings wanted to not mooch off of him, but take advantage of the fact that he was famous and that he was making money and that he could support them. And many of his siblings had daughters who needed dowries. And he, if ever he was asked, he was always so kindly and generous, he couldn't say no. And so his money was, was disappearing left and right. But we're, we're still early in his career when there was no money to have yet. Okay, all right, so... Yeah, yeah. You're right. Celebrities have uh, you know, relatives who mooch off of them. All right. But not just that they mooch off of them, they, they lived with him. Uh, members of, of, of his nuclear family as a child moved in with him and, 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 and the young wife in Pressburg, and so the young wife was supporting or was taking care of the needs of family members who she really didn't want to have around, especially Aunt Gittel. She was the worst. And Aunt Gittel used to make fun of, uh, uh, of Rebetzin Rosenblatt that in the first year of marriage she didn't get pregnant. So there was a, there was a little nastiness to that as well. Fortunately, it, uh, she did get pregnant the second year they were married, and the, the boy that was born was Samuel Shmuel, who was the author of the biography of Yosla Rosenblatt, his oldest child, his son, who went on to become an illustrious rabbi at Beth Tefila in Baltimore and a professor of, of uh, uh, Oriental Studies at uh, Johns Hopkins University and was an important American Jewish leader. Okay. Orthodox? Interestingly, he was a graduate of the JTS class of 25, got Orthodox Micha from Eretz Yisrael from Rav Cook. Beth Tefila had quasi-mixed seating for a long time, but was a member of the OU, but he was a member of the Rabbinical Assembly until in 1950 he resigned from his membership in the Rabbinical Assembly over the issue of driving on Shabbos when the, when the conservative movement, the CJLS, the, Cons- the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, gave a, an opinion that said you could drive to Shul on Shabbos. He said, that's it, I'm out. And basically jettisoned his relationship with you know, the, the conservative movement and was effectively orthodox. Yeah. He was Samuel Rosenblatt's grandson and the great-grandson of Yesler Rosenblatt. Okay. So, in Pressburg, Yesler had the time and the inclination to write musical pieces. And in the five years he was there, from 1901 to 1906, he wrote over 150 pieces. Where did he learn music from? He didn't have any education as a child, any secular education, and even his Judaic education was from private tutors on the run while he was going from Shabbos to Shabbos. So they were mostly uh, recitatives from the, from the davening, lit, lit, liturgical compositions. And every now and then, it was something that wasn't liturgical, but was based upon a passage in the Mishnah or the Talmud. But everything was from our own religious heritage, nothing from the outside, no new, comp- no new um, compositions. Huh? He learned basic nusach from his father, but the greatness of Yasla was that he went beyond the basic nusach and gave people improvisation almost every time he went to the pulpit. And they loved it. The question is putting that improvisation down on paper and making it last in perpetuity. And he was able to learn how to write music, and he would write wherever he was on the train, on the uh, on uh, on the bus, no matter where he found himself, on a scrap of paper, on a on a on his shoelaces, he would write wherever he was, whatever scrap he could find, if it came into his head. Did he sing from notes, or he sang from like a All right, so he did not sing from notes at the Amud. That's already distasteful. There are chazonim today, whom I know personally, who occasionally will do that when they're reciting something that they don't know all that well, and they need to see the score in front of them. But it's regarded in the world of chazonis as unseemly, and you should learn it ahead of time. Okay. So, in 1906, it's time to move on from Pressburg. The money isn't good enough, and uh, the wife is not happy, Hamburg awaits. Hamburg. The wealthiest Jewish community in Germany. An illustrious position. He beat out 56 other competitors for the job. The Rav there was Marcus Hirsch. 
And when he gets to Hamburg, and he t- settles in the position, there are certain things about Hamburg that he doesn't like. The wife loves Hamburg. They have electricity, uh, nice accommodations. The life is mo- moving up in the world. Did the extended family move with him? No. No. But they were still supporting people back in, in uh, Bukovina. Okay. So, but the family is getting larger. They're having basically a child every year. And uh, what, is, what is it going to be like in, in a Western European city for a, a, a chassid of a chazan out of the Ukraine? He has to accommodate himself to uh, German orthodoxy. Some faux pas has happened. For example, a woman tried to shake his hand after davening one Shabbos at the Kiddush, and he, and he left her hanging. <laughs> now you should know that that was 1906. Exactly, exactly 100 years later to the day, I saw this generation's best chazan do the same thing when he was a young man off the boat from Israel on East 68th Street in Manhattan, leave someone hanging who was the wife of a member of the board of the shul, and he got, a, he got yelled at for it afterwards. Okay, so the same things happen again and again. Huh? What was that? He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't shake hands. To this day, he doesn't shake hands. So, another example, he went to a dinner the, sh- the annual shul dinner. And the women were dressed in the style of Hamburg of 1906, which meant that uh, low-cut tops. A shanda by Hasidic standards of Eastern Europe, but perfectly normal by the standards of even Orthodox Judaism of Germany in 1906. It doesn't matter Jewish or not Jewish. doesn't matter. The point is he's being exposed to something that's out of the ordinary for him. So he went up to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, you, you allow this in your shul? And to which Dr. Hirsch said, uh, you know, 25 years, I'm in the rabbinate here, I never noticed anything out of the, uh, you know, unseemly. <laughs> because for him, this was perfectly fine, but for a chassid from the Ukraine, this was, this was, un, it was inappropriate. He was 24 years old. 24. I, I don't believe so, no. Okay. Um, another problem, Yasla's nigunim and uh, cantorial pieces, repeated words. Now, in the Eastern Europe, you could get away with that, but in in Central Europe, they're very tough. You know, it's it's against the din, as they would say. So, so they question them. How could you repeat words? It's, it, it doesn't. It's not written like that in the prayer book. They would tell them. And what was he supposed to do? He wanted to repeat words. It would be an ongoing problem for Chazanim for the next century. Some places allow you to repeat, and some places don't. For example, the Great Synagogue of Jerusalem doesn't allow any repetition, but the big cantorial synagogues of the United States all allow repetition, as far as I'm aware of. Maybe, I don't know, Bethel and Borough Park allows repetition of words. I'm not so sure. Gets away with it? Uh-huh. No, the young Israels typically don't allow. Okay. Another, uh, another example... Yasala was required to come to shul every morning for shacharis. Now, no, 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 not to perform. Just to be at the minion every morning as a member of the clergy, six o'clock shacharis every day. Now, for uh, an artist who's up late at night, concertizing or who knows what, getting up in the morning, especially in a cold winter morning, for 6 a.m. shacharis is a difficult thing, or at least he found it to be difficult. It, no one was checking on him whether he was at shacharis when he was back in, in Eastern Europe. And so he had a hard time of it. People would, 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 would criticize him. He didn't like the fact that German Judaism was Judaism of the clock. Everything was very punctual. For the Hasidim of the Ukraine, nothing is punctual. <laughs> He also didn't like the, uh, the dichotomy between the kolatsmotai tomana, the shuckling, the, the full-body gesticulations of Eastern Europe, and the stoic character of Western European orthodoxy. And he said about his congregants that they were like ice cream, where it says on the ice cream label, quote, frozen under the supervision of Chief Rabbi Dr. Breuer. <laughs> he was a funny guy like that. Okay. All right. In 1912, it was time to move on. 
it was time to move on. He was, he was there six years. And where to? Well, time to go to America. America is beckoning. America is where the money could be found. And there are now several million Eastern European Jews who are recently, have recently arrived in America. And there's got to be a shul for him that could pay a nice salary and allow him to live a, 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 a reasonably comfortable life. He also, in part, wanted to get away from Europe because people were hounding him in Europe, whether family members for, for money. And he was, again, he was so charitable. He would use his voice for benefit concerts to help uh, the most those, the institutions of Jewish communal life. He would give his all, and out of his own pocket. But he wanted to get away from that to an extent. So the first Hungarian congregation, or Tzedek of New York, uh, is looking for a chazan. Now, Ov Tzedek was where at that time? Harlem. In 1912, Harlem was still Jewish. As Professor Jeffrey Gurak wrote, when Harlem was Jewish, 1870 to 1930. It was a very Jewish neighborhood. It was on 116th Street. Later, it moved down to 95th, where it is today. And it, on West Side, West Side. So, he goes to Ov Tzedek, and they're going to pay him $2,400 a year, plus whatever emoluments he can get from weddings and bar mitzvahs and funerals and the like. When he's hired, um, there is a line by one of the board members of El Tzedek which shows uh, the superiority complex of Hungarian Jews. Quote, um, It is true that he is not a Hungarian, yet he is an extraordinarily fine and decent person. <laughs> with whom you'll be able to discuss matters further in person. In other words, the Hungarians typically thought of themselves as being the cream of the crop, the best of the best. Whether that's justified or not, I'll let you decide. But the point is that Yasala, although he was not a Hungarian Jew, he spent the bulk of his career uh, functioning in Hungarian pulpits, whether first at Munkacs, then later in Pressburg, which is effectively Hungarian, and later at Ob Tzedek. Okay, so he comes to the United States and he loves it. Right away, he decides he loves America. He wants to be a U.S. citizen as soon as possible. In 1917, he proudly takes uh, the citizenship oath. Early in his uh, tenure in America, war breaks out. And what side is he on? What side is his family on? He had a love in his heart for Franz Joseph, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian kingdom, who had given Jews citizenship, and his years there were good years. He doesn't like the Tsar. The Tsar kicked him out of Russia when he was seven years old. So like many Jews in America, they were rooting for the wrong team at first. When the Americans joined the war, obviously Yasla, the good patriotic American, will switch sides. And fa- he's in 1917 and becomes an American citizen. Um, the war had a tremendous impact on his uh, chazanut and his composition of new pieces. As the war was winding down, it was quite clear that the Jews had suffered terribly in Eastern Europe, that there were many victims, that there were pogroms happening. It was a disaster. And only the, the uh, enormity of the Shoah, has, which eclipsed the, the devastation of World War I, has taken that tragedy off of our minds. But at the time, it was seen as the worst possible scenario. Hundreds of thousands of Jews killed. And so he focused his uh, cantorial writing on parts of the davening that are sad. The Shabbos and Yom Tov davening is happy, it's uplifting. All right. Nice halil, good melodies. But that's when you're happy. What about when you're sad? So the davening of the Yemos Chol, the, the weekdays, had been largely untouched by the cantorial world, and for good reason. What happens on a Tuesday? You come to Shul at 7 and you're out by 7.26. Uh, there's no time for Chazunus on, 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 a, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. 
So therefore, all the cantorial pieces are Shabbos and Yom Tov. He changed that. He wrote Yerushalayim Yircha, and he wrote Alna Bavil, he wrote Rachem Na, he wrote a lot of pieces, Habet Mishamayim, on Tachanun, on the weekday davening, because the content allows for the sobbing, allows for the expressing of, of sadness, of raw emotion in a time of, of distress. When did he perform them? Concerts, or occasionally on a, on a, on a weekday, when there were, for whatever reason there was a, a cantorial experience, which during Sphira would happen a lot. During Sphira they would have, a, instead of a musical accompaniment, <coughs> they would have just davening. Like uh, even to uh, Ariyomazel, we have you know a Sphira concert is what is really Marv. It's a weekday Marv. That's all it is. Yeah. In his lifetime, did he make any money from his recording? Okay, okay. So the money, the money is going to occupy the next half hour because it's going to de- it's going to destroy him. All right. Well, in 1917, he almost left OZ. A rumor was going around that he was going to quit. Why? Because he was offered $6,000 to do just the high holidays. For Slichos, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur, four days of davening, he was going to get $6,000. He was convinced not to do that by... Which shul was that? Not a shul. Not a shul. A catering hall or something like that, a, f- a facility. He, Dr. Philip Hillel Klein, who was the rabbi of Ozi and one of the, the heavy hitters of American uh, Orthodox rabbinate, told them, Yasala, don't do it. Why? Because you don't want to be a gypsy chazan again. You don't want to be without a pulpit. And several of the major chazanim over the next century made that mistake. They thought they could be a troubadour, they could go around concertizing on the occasional Shabbos or Yontif and make a life for themselves. But it was always a mistake. If you don't have a regular job, you are nobody. If you're the, if you're the chazan of Oav Tzedek Synagogue, you're the chazan of Oav Tzedek. But if you're not, what are you? You could try to get gigs here and there, but who's to say it'll work out? So he didn't leave. They gave him a little bit of a raise in salary, and he was fine. He d- began doing large concerts at the New York Hippodrome, which uh, no longer exists. Yes. So uh, the building was torn down, and now you have a skyscraper there. Um, but that building f- f- uh, seated about 5,000 people, and he could fill up the arena. He could fill it up. No problem. Um, many events were done with charity in mind for uh, aid to victims of the war in Europe, for Zionism, and Yosla was a tremendous Zionist, a big, big Zionist. He loved the idea of the rebuilding of Eretz Yisrael. That's before World War II, right? Well, he died in 1933. So in, the, in those days, yeah. people were assimilating. They, they still wanted to be... I mean, they wanted to go to the if they were immigrants themselves and didn't understand the local culture, then Chazonus was a nice distraction for them. Their children would not be interested probably and would rather watch the, uh, the Yankees in the Bronx. But for many, many Jews in New York and in other cities around the, uh, the country, there was still a real interest in Chazanut. That was their entertainment. Okay. In 1918, the big question hit Yasala. Would he sing in the opera? And this was the big, big question because there was a lot of money on the line. He sang at a concert in Chicago in the spring of 1918, and Cleofonte Campanini, the head of the Chicago opera, offered him $1,000 a night to play the part of Elazar in Halevi's La Juive which is a, a role that is, you know, shows Jews and Judaism in a positive light. And uh, Campanini was willing to take into account all of Yosla's religious considerations, meaning no performances Friday night, no performances Saturday during the day, no need to be in a compromising situation with a woman on stage. Uh, whatever y- kosher food made available, whatever Yosla needed, he would take care of it. Why did he, he was so talented? He was that good. He was the best. Caruso thought he was the best. So, what's Yasla going to do? $1,000 a night. Now, bear in mind, he already has financial trouble. He has a large family to support, hangers-on, he was giving a lot of tzedakah, 
doing a lot of concerts gratis because he wanted to support charities. He needs the money. He's not living an opulent lifestyle, but he still is desperate for cash. So he says, if you can accommodate all my religious concerns, I might be okay with it, but I have an arrangement with my shul that doesn't expire for another two years. So you'd have to ask them. His son Samuel, in the, auto, in the biography, claims that in his heart of hearts, Yasla wanted the shul to refuse. And the shul refused. So ultimately, Yasla didn't sing in the opera. But others interpreted it that, no, he was, he was going to do it, and if not for the shul stepping in, he really would have. That's a machlokus of how to interpret what actually happened. But the bottom line is, it was better from the end that he didn't sing in the opera, because he was regarded as having done the Kiddush Hashem of the highest order, that he wouldn't uh, disgrace the Amud, the pulpit, the synagogue, for a role in the opera, that it's unbecoming of a chazan to do that. Later, in 1943... In 1943, Richard Tucker would have a similar situation. Richard Tucker was the chaz in the Brooklyn Jewish Center, and the rabbi of the Brooklyn Jewish Center, Israel Leventhal, asked a question of the Gadolador. Who's the Gadolador? Louis Ginsburg. <laughs> Professor Louis Ginsburg was at that time the Gadolador in America, among the non-Orthodox world. And, uh, and Ginsburg said, it's not right for someone to be singing Kol Nidre one night in an aria with some lady the next night. Therefore, don't do it. Therefore, what did Richard Tucker do? He resigned as the chazan and became an opera singer. But he never gave up chazanus altogether. He would go up to, to, to the, the hotels in the mountains and would daven even uh, sukkahs and shmini atzeres and then go... Yeah. 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 So, Yashla didn't sing in the opera. Well, it wasn't the last time that the outside world wanted him and he'd have to deal with the question of do I... Do I compromise my religious standards or do I stick with my guns and go with just you know, traditional, the traditional ways? Which leads me to the next point. Jessica Rosenblatt was one of the few, very, very few, maybe the only, really from Chazan in the golden age of Chazanus. The golden age being the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, most of the Chazanim were at best nominally observant. Observant enough not to get caught. In other words, why did a certain chazan who replaced Moshe Kosovitsky get fired from Bethel? Not because he drove on Shabbos, because they caught him driving on Shabbos. Okay? So, no names. Uh, he's still alive. So, Moshe Kosovitsky was, was, was a Shomer Shabbos man, but was not from in the sense of Yoshua Rosenblatt from. Zavol Kvartin, who was his main competitor, Rosenblatt, was not all that religious. Mordechai Hirschman was not all that religious. Moshe Eicher was Mamashe Shegetz, with a cigar in his mouth, puffing away during Musaf. Okay, <laughs> I don't mean that literally, but but almost literally. Okay, so that Yasla was a very very religious man. He stood out not only in his profession, but certainly in the wider world of entertainers, which he would enter soon enough on the stage. Okay. And this was something that everyone else had to, to learn to accommodate, meaning his agents, his managers, the fellow performers. Once he left uh, exclusively being in the world of Chazanut and going on general audience stage, where, he, where, where, where the audience was not just Jewish, but also non-Jewish, people were astounded by the fact that this, you know, this guy with a long beard and a, and a top hat and looks like a, a man of the old world. So, in 1922, again, he almost leaves OZ. He signs a deal with a bunch of uh, Jews in Philadelphia to do the high holidays for $25,000. That's a lot of money. The choir was going to get $10,000. He would get $15,000. He needed the money desperately. But, somehow, OZ was able to get him to back out. At that point, 40. But in in backing out, he had to indemnify the guys in Philadelphia who had made all the arrangements. So for the next three years, he owed them $5,000 a year, money that he didn't have. Okay. Also that year was the ultimate disaster of his life, the light of Israel, Ner Tamid. He went to Montreal for a concert. 
and a bunch of hucksters and slick talkers convinced him to sink his fortune into a newspaper, a weekly newspaper that would be like a Kiruv newspaper to promote Torah and Judaism. And Yosla was very much in favor of bringing people back to tradition. And his whole life, his whole career, he was trying to use his voice to bring people closer to Yiddishkeit. But the people who ran the paper were a bunch of Ganovim, and Yosla wasn't really smart about it. He didn't understand business. Chazonim zainan naronim is the old expression. And he was taken to the cleaners. He lost more and more money. His wife yelled at him terribly, and the whole family said, you don't know what you're doing, you know, uh, Daddy, you don't know what you're doing. This, all the sons said, this is insane. And he was, he, he, he didn't listen. So, he needs money. 1923, he goes on a trip to Europe to concertize. His son is now his, uh, his agent, son Leo. He's a law student at Columbia. And he goes to Europe. He sings not only Jewish, but non-Jewish uh, songs as well, opera. It's very well received in London. It's well received in Western Europe, even in, in, in Eastern Europe. But there are some criticisms. One criticism is that, yes, he has a wonderful voice, but when he does non-Jewish music, he's not all that impressive. That the, 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 uh, the greats of the opera would far uh, outshine him, and that he should stick to uh, his... But not everyone agrees. You know, uh, when it comes to a critical review of, of, of uh, theatrical performances, so everyone has their own opinion. And some of the Jews were his most vicious critics, especially in Eastern Europe. Another problem is when he would go to these places, especially when there were uh, European cities with a large contingent of Eastern European Jews, they would yell from the audience, Yiddish, Yiddish, or Tfilos, Tfilos. They didn't want to hear an opera. They came to hear what he really had to, to offer them, Chazunus. And he had to say, I want to vary my repertoire. And that didn't always go, go over so well. Um, in 1924... Was that a financial success for him? No. Between the travel and the choirs and the advertising, he came away with not all that much. That was the story of his life. There was a lot of money involved... But how much of it actually was left as you know, a profit at the end of the day? Usually very little, despite the fact that we're dealing with tremendous sums of money. He went on a tour of America in 1924. All, to the, all the, the, the cities of the West, the Midwest, the South, all over the country. Interestingly, there's a story when he was in Salt Lake City. Uh, are there Jews in Salt Lake City? Not really. Um... And he was on the train. I'll read to you. Funny little story. Um, he was on the train near Salt Lake City. As the train was pulling out, of, out some serious looking girls passed by the window of Dad's compartment. Seeing his patriarchal countenance, one of them made the sign of the cross. That incident was characteristic of the high respect which the great Mormon city later received Dad. In other words, he looked like God. I mean, if you saw Yasla Rosenblatt, you saw a very divine-looking figure. Okay. Because people, he, he could do concerts even in areas where there weren't Jews. Uh, when he goes to vaudeville, this would be especially the case. So, in 1925, January, he declares bankruptcy. Personal bankruptcy. He, owed, he had assets of $30,000, of which $22,000 was his home in Harlem. But he had debts of $191,000. Terrible. Mamish terrible. And he went to bankruptcy. He put out an ad in the Yiddish newspapers saying that even though he has gone to the courts to protect himself uh, from uh, the creditors who were hounding him, he has every intention of repaying every penny of all of his debts and that he's going to work extra hard over the next few years even if he's not legally responsible to pay it he feels a moral responsibility and he will do it that was Yasala's uh, inner feeling that he had a moral responsibility yeah so they raised his salary he was making about $10,000 a year at this point which is a nice amount of money but his charitable nature and his business uh, stupidity got in the way and no matter how much the shul was going to pay him he was going to have problems okay so he does vaudeville his son leo 
realized that Europe had been done, America had been done, all the Jewish cities had heard him, but now the Goyim need to hear him. So the, the variety acts of the 1920s were very popular. Before they were talking movies. People would, you know, would go to see these shows, and you'd have you know, the, the, the freak, the bearded lady, who knows what, and you'd have Yasser Rosenblatt. Okay, so and and Gentiles liked it as well. So he went to all these different appearances. Well, you, didn't, you didn't have only that. You had the Eddie Cantors, uh-huh. you had the Al Josens. They were all in vaudeville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it wasn't only freak shows. No, 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 no. Real performers were there. Yeah. They, okay, so he had to make sure that all of his religious accommodations were taken care of, and the and the managers were, uh, and the producers of these shows were more than happy to accommodate because they paid him maybe $1,000 in appearance. But they were making money hand over fist. And, and Yasala was not reaping much of the reward. The, pr- the promoters and the producers were making the money. He was getting whatever nominal fee he could get, which was a nice amount. He was also making money off of his record sales, the phonograph, Victor, the, the Victor Record Company, and he was making about $1,500 a year in royalties, which was a nice amount, but again, he was paying it to his creditors. Then in 1927 an opportunity presented itself for $100,000. The jazz singer. The jazz singer. They wanted... He's 45 years old. And Al Jolson, the jazz singer, they want Yasala to sing... You're talking talking about the movie? The movie. This is the first ever talking movie. Because Georgie Jessel originated the... That was the show, right. and it was a very successful show, and now it was going to be made into a talking film. So uh, RCA wanted Yasala. They want to bring him out to Hollywood, and they want him to sing Kol Nidre in the movie. And Yasala says, absolutely not, not for a million dollars would he sing Kol Nidre in the movie. Why? Number one, Kol Nidre is for the Yomud and Yom Kippur only. Other liturgical pieces can be done in concert, can be done at other times for recording. Kol Nidre is not to be done at any time other than on Yom Kippur. That was an absolute for him. Was that, a psaac that, he got, or was that was his psaac, psaac Rosenblatt. The other thing is, he always refused to wear makeup. He didn't want to go on screen if it required that he be adorned in any way. When he went on stage for a concert, he went out with his suit and his hat and his beard, and that was it. He was a, an ordinary guy who went out on the stage. He would not allow for makeup artists and the like. Not going to happen. So he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I can't do it. They come back with another offer. Fine, you don't have to be in the movie, but we want your voice in the movie. And you don't have to sing Kol Nidre. You can do non-liturgical pieces of, of, with a Jewish flavor. So he ended up doing... Kaylee, Kaylee, and uh, I forget the other piece, but basically not from the statutory prayers, not from the real parts of the davening. That he could, accom- he could uh, make his peace with. And for $10,000, he spent eight weeks out in California getting the job done. While he was there... What role did he play? The father? No, he played no role. His voice was, was, the, was the chazan in the background. Oh, okay. He didn't dub for... No, no. Al Jolson himself did Kol Nidre. Good Kol Nidre, right. right. But say he was the Chazan in the original uh, Yes, yes. Okay, so um, while he was out in California, he met Charlie Chaplin. And Charlie Chaplin... Um, what? Wasn't Charlie Chaplin at the Sinai No, he was half Jewish. So when he met him... Chaplin was not this, uh, you know, silent and freakish kind of guy. He was actually a very educated Englishman. And him and Yasla spent the afternoon together sipping tea and discussing things. And Charlie Chaplin then put on a record. And it was Yasla's record. And Yasla was shocked. You have my record? He says, I have every one of them. And when I'm sad, I listen to it. That's what Charlie Chaplin said, yeah. Okay. In 1928, he needs money again. But I've, I neglected to mention something. In 1926, he resigned from OZ. Why? They, they couldn't afford it. They, they couldn't give him the kind of increase in salary he needed. He wanted to do high holidays in a big place in front of thousands of people to make money. He found it distasteful, but he had to do it. But he couldn't do it in New York because it would be like a slap in the face to OZ. Plus, the New Yorkers had all heard him already enough times. So he decided to go to Chicago. And, yeah. It, it didn't get worse. It, despite the, the, the uh, overuse of the voice, 
it maintained its, its uh, quality all to the very end until his last performance in Yerushalayim. Um, he went to Chicago. 4,000 people heard him daven that year. But he didn't like this idea. He wanted to be in a shul, a makam of, of Kedusha. But he needed the cash. In order to justify it to himself, he said that it'll be in conjunction with the base Medrash HaGadol of Chicago, and all the extra proceeds beyond what I'm officially supposed to get paid will go to the base Medrash HaGadol of Chicago. So it was like, an, like a satellite minion of an existing shul. Now really it wasn't, but he was able to justify it to himself by doing that. Oh, big time. Then in 1927, he did it in Detroit. By 1928, he was at Anche in Borough Park, where, uh, where they paid him $12,000. And so he had to move his family from, from Harlem to Brooklyn, and that was a big year for him because he also went on another European tour, and three of his kids got married. They set a record in the city of New York, three siblings getting married in the same week. Now, why they all get married in the same week? Because Yosla was busy on the road, concertizing. He was hardly ever home. So three siblings had gotten engaged, and they all got married. One was a Sunday, one was a Wednesday, and one was a Saturday night. And all in one week. Three chasnas. Okay. In those years, there weren't so many shevabrachas. Okay. He sang at all the weddings. Yeah. Uh, two sons and a daughter. Okay. No, he's not rich. He still owes thousands all over, all over town. All right, in 1930, in 1929, there's the crash. And the crash is not good for business. He's in South America at the time because his son Leo said, Dad, we've been to America, we've been to Europe, we've been to Europe twice. We've done records, we've done vaudeville. Vaudeville is now dead because the talking movies have killed vaudeville. So you need money somehow. South America. So he goes to Argentina, Buenos Aires, and makes a, a, a nice panasa in Buenos Aires for a few weeks. Then he goes to Brazil, uh, where he stocks up on kosher food, because there wasn't much around elsewhere, and he does some performances. While he's in South America, the Chevron massacre takes place, and it's very disheartening to him. And he dedicates those, the rest of the concerts in South America to the victims of Chevron. He comes back to America, the crash. Anche Svard can't really pay him his salary anymore. 1930, he goes back to OZ. OZ is, well, is willing to welcome him back. They are a pr- rich, prestigious congregation in Manhattan. They still have money even during the Depression. Though the truth of the matter is, even they don't have that much money. They're running out. So the arrangement was he would daven twice a month. Rosh Chodesh benching in one other time. Which was actually a lot for him because earlier in his career he would daven once a month just Rosh Chodesh benching. So his concert schedule sometimes interfered with his synagogue calendar. And what happens if a macher of a member has a bar mitzvah of a son and Yasala is off on a concert in, in Tuscaloosa or somewhere, who knows where, and he's not on 95th Street. Actually, yeah, at that time it was 95th Street. So the, 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 the shul macher is going to get angry and they're going to hold it against Yasala. So he tried to make arrangements in his 14 years from 1912 to 1926 whenever there was a conflict they would always figure out a, 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 a reasonable compromise, a pshara. But, truth of the matter is, Ozi was regretting having rehired him. They can't really afford him. So they, they were nitpicking at his, at his chazanus and his schedule to find the pretext to fire him. And in 1932, they fired him. They fired Yasselo Rosenblatt. What a disgrace. One of them was, a, um, Henry had, had musical talent, uh, but none of them, other than Henry, none of them went to, to the business. Okay. So he's a man without a, uh, without a job and with tremendous debt, both official debt that he had been accumulating since he got out, of, got out of bankruptcy and the old bankruptcy which he felt morally obligated to repay all the creditors. So what does he do? He needs some source of money. In the Depression, who's paying $1,000 a fee for a concert? Nobody. He had to accept $250 for a concert. Yasla Rosenblatt, who was making uh, 10 times that, 100 times that, is now taking pennies in order to, to survive. Not exactly a pleasant way to, you know, to, to exist. So there's one thing he hasn't yet done that he really wanted to do, and that was go to Israel. And he thought maybe he could do some, some concerts in Eretz Yisrael and recover, recover some money and then come back to New York. 
Moreover, there's an offer for a movie. A movie. And the movie was going to be titled um, Palestine, The Dream of My People. He would be in a in various scenes in, in parts of Eretz Yisrael, singing his compositions that related to that part of Eretz Yisrael. Who was making uh, It was uh, an entrepreneur, not a, like a, a reputable movie company. But in Israel? In Israel. Which was in Israel? It was Palestine, British Palestine. So he goes. But before he goes, in uh, April of 1933, some people try to prevent him from leaving America. They accuse him of ba- basically being uh, a, a, a debtor who's uh, tr- trying to run away from his debts. And legal action was taken against him. He almost was arrested for failure to, to come up with a $1,000 bond at one point. And he, he had to plead and beg for mercy from one of his neighbors to give him the money. So he's running away from a pile of debt. Even the, the, uh, the girl who was the housekeeper... But they borrowed two hundred fifty dollars from her, and she threatened to call the cops if they tried to leave the country. So they snuck out, basically under cover of darkness. When you say they, they meaning Yasla, his wife, and his youngest son. Three. Three. And he had money. He w- was able to come up with money for, for 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 the boat. Miles. He got he got to Eretz Israel, and he loved Eretz Israel. And Eretz Yisrael loved him back. He davened for the Yamud and gave concerts all over the country. He filmed the movie and he developed a very close relationship with Rav Cook. He davened, he spent Shabbos a few weeks in a row with Rav Cook. He davened for the Yamud with Rav Cook's minion and uh, he, was, he was mamish in heaven. Except that, literally, almost. So after uh, filming a scene which uh, the footage still exists, uh, in the Jordan River. He's on a boat in the Jordan River, and he's singing Lo Amesim Yahaluka from the Hallel, about the river splitting. So he's reenacting the Bible with his music. He, he goes back to Yerushalayim. He has horrible chest pain. He collapses. The doctors are called in. They say that he has some kind of a pulmonary situation. And... A few hours later, he's dead. 51 years old. 51 years old. That is the saddest story I've heard. So, his, his, it's a very sad story. One of the, the speculated reasons why he died, aside from this general heartache of years of financial misery and having to run around the world to try to make a buck, was that the week before he left for Israel, he saw one of his nastier creditors uh, in Manhattan on Madison Avenue. And in order not to cross paths with him and not to be seen, he tried to j- run across the street to the other side. And he didn't look, and he was hit by a cab. And he was knocked unconscious. And he may have had a concussion. And so Samuel Rosenblatt thinks that although the doctors at the time said it was nothing, maybe uh, that really did him in. So, so a, a, a variety of you know, bad things happened to him the last couple of weeks. But he... His last hurrah was Shabbos in the Churva Synagogue. And the Churva Synagogue never allowed Chazonus. It was always very stoic, like very traditional old world, old Yeshuv. Nothing of the, you know, the, chaz, uh, the, the musical Chazanim. They never allowed it. But for Yosela, they allowed it. And not only did they allow it, but after certain pieces, they even clapped on Shabbos. You know, it's technically speaking, also to clap on Shabbos. Nobody knows that, but it's true. All right? Also forbidden to dance on Shabbos and on Yontif, but we all do it. Um, so, they, and when, when, when davening was over, they carried him on their, on their backs, uh, like, like he won the Super Bowl around the streets of Yerushalayim. That's how great it was. So the Rebono Shlom gave him one last pulpit in Yerushalayim in the Chorva Synagogue. Okay, now, y- Yasla Rosenblatt's melodies lived on well after his, uh, his passing. And... Uh, he would, he would not be eclipsed as, as sort of the greatest chazan ever, in my opinion, but other composers like the Kusevitsky brothers and, uh, for example, uh, Glantz and Kvartin and Reutemann Rimshinsky, others uh, 
achieved great renown and became part of the, uh, the repertoire of the great Chazanim of today. I had the privilege of uh, serving in a big cantorial synagogue and used to ha- have my ear, my left ear, within 18 inches of the mouth of the, some of the greatest Chazanim in the world during Hachnasa Sefer Torah. So I'll just give you an example of, of how Chazanus lovers can go meshuga for the, the one they love, their preferred uh, composer. When Kanta Helfgott and the choir would get up to putting away the Torah, so there were two options. Well, there were many options. It was, you know, Kantorial Chaim, the two different uh, congregational Chaims you could sing. You could sing a Kalbach Chaim. Uh, you could sing even Lewandowski's old German 19th century Yitzchayim. Uh, uh, but really, in the Chazonist world, there are two pieces when you put away the Torah that are possible. One is Yasla Zuvnucha Yomar, and the other is Reutman's Bavur David. So, we never knew what was going to happen. I loved Yasla Zuvnucha Yomar, but there was a certain member of the board of the shul, Mr. Lefkowitz, Zoli Lefkowitz, God should, 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 should give him strength. That may have asked him to be a patron of Chazanut. He wanted Bavur David. I'm the employee. He's the one writing the check. What do you think happened most of the time? So it wasn't It was Bavur David without fail. So, but Yasela's Nigunim uh, did enter into the world beyond that of Chazanus. Most importantly, was Shir Hamalos. Shir Hamalos Bishum. That's Yasla's. And so much uh, did that enter into the, the general world that um, in Eretz Yisrael, when Yasla was there in 1933, there was some talk of making that like the national anthem. Chaim Nachman Bialik actually preferred Yasla's Shir Hamalos over the, uh, the Moldau version of Hatikva. <laughs> of course, it wasn't meant to be, but still, everybody knows it. You had a question. So where, where are we today, so in terms of Karbach uh-huh. and everything? So where are we today in terms of, we, you know, we grew up, a lot of us grew up with this Chazanus and Hashul. It doesn't exist today. Right. Okay, so it, 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 it made a resurgence. Cantorial music basically died um, after the 1960s, maybe 70s. 80s and 90s, there was nothing. When I was a kid, very, very few shuls had a real chazan. Some of the fancy Manhattan shuls had one. In Borough Park, you had. And in, in Great Neck, we had Eliezer Shulman. My, my chazan of my youth was Eliezer Shulman and, and was, was very good. But, but after that generation died out, they were not replaced. And so most of the Orthodox shuls don't have a paid chazan. At best, they have a baltzfila. Then, in the early 2000s, there was a tremendous resurgence of chazanut, in significant part because Rabbi Arthur Schneier and Rabbi Mark Schneier uh, decided to compete over who could have the best chazan, and that brought back chazanut to America. Also because... In Israel, there are good cantorial schools. Naftali Hershtik and the, the Tel Aviv school produced many quality cantors. And so today you have uh, not just the older generation of, uh, of Yaakov Motzen and Shmuel Farkish. And the, uh, you have younger guys like Ozzy Schwartz, Zev Muller, Yanki Lemmer, um, who are very, very good. Now, in what, in, where do these people get jobs? The answer is... Is, is, it, is it yeah. Okay, okay, so let me, let me clarify something. Many of the Chazanim who have been hired over the past decade in, in prestigious Orthodox synagogues in America, the Chazanim themselves were hired with the hopes that they could sing classical Chazanut. But in many of those shuls, the reality is the congregants are not interested in it, or most kinds are not interested in it. Therefore, what do they actually sing? Congregational melodies and Kalbach. And only on rare occasion are they able to throw in a classical cantorial piece, which, to my mind, is a complete waste of money. Why pay someone a, a, a big cantorial salary if he's competent, if you're not going to let him do what he knows how to do? But that's just my opinion. Um, now, in the conservative movement and the reform, the Chazanim are, are usually very, very bad. No, 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 no,
it happens to be that anecdotally, you're not entirely wrong. My father is a pulmonologist, and he once had an had an Irish tenor who was a patient of his, and came in early September and wanted wanted help because he had to sing Kol in his job a few weeks later. So yes, there are some who are not Jewish. No, but but let me explain to you why in the conservative reform shuls the chazanim are not all that good. It's because in that world, if if a person actually had talent, they wouldn't go into the Jewish line of work. They would go into opera to Broadway. Whereas in the Orthodox world, if you're a chassid, if you're coming from, the, from a cloistered environment and you have great talent, you're not going to become all of a sudden a star on America's Got Talent or, or Broadway. At best, you can go to a modern Orthodox shul and collect a six-figure salary. So there are very good chazonim out there who are available for the modern Orthodox if they were interested, except they aren't. And by the non-Orthodox, essentially you have people who are not as skilled and therefore the music is not as good. Okay, we'll stop here.